Let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 this morning as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. As you guys head towards 1 Corinthians chapter 11, let me just remind you that the Apostle Paul has planted this church back in Acts chapter 18. And since that time, there are now questions that have come to the church. They've got struggles. They've got issues that are taking place. And Paul begins to address the issues specifically written to him from leadership in chapter 7. And as we arrived then in chapter 8, and he covered this through three chapters, 8 through 10, Paul was addressing how they were to handle their liberties they have now in Christ Jesus. And so as Paul is writing this, he's writing from a place where he understands that one of the spots where we really begin to be divided or we we begin to feel like we are being uh, pressed in on is when our liberties are infringed. And so Paul's writing to them, hoping that they'll be unified, but he knows that division happens whenever we feel like somehow uh, we are being persecuted or our liberties are being stepped on. What Paul says in chapter 10 there at the end of the chapter, verse 23 in particular, is that we are free in Christ. He says that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. And so it's true that we have this freedom in Christ, but inside that freedom we have to understand as we mature that not all things are going to be helpful to me. There are things that I can experience in my Christian liberty that isn't going to advance me in terms of maturity. And so the question comes about then, what am I to do with these liberties I have in Christ? And a few things that Paul writes at the end of chapter 10 is is simply this, that I can I give thanks in this thing that I'm experiencing? And so can I give thanks in this spot that I'm in, in this activity that I'm participating in? The second thing he gives us to consider is, can I glorify God in this spot? And then thirdly, uh, will whatever I'm experiencing, the way I'm expressing my liberties I have in Christ, will this stumble a brother or sister in Christ, one who is weaker than me? And so as I run all the things that I experience, the ways that I express my liberties through that uh, grid, what Paul says is that at some point in time that we should mature to the point where we begin to think about others ahead of ourselves. Now, how might that look? What might that look like as we conduct ourselves? Is he's going to address church conduct? Well, Paul says in chapter 11, verse 1, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So if you want to know what this looks like, being lived out practically daily, what Paul says is, take a look at me. And this is a bold statement that Paul makes. In fact, this is one that makes many of us recoil. But as Paul states that, he then goes on to explain to them what Uh, church conduct, what hierarchy should look like uh, in a family as well as in a church. And we spent all last week talking about uh, head coverings for the most part. And so seeing as how uh, some of you showed back up again, uh, you apparently I didn't run you off with 40 minutes of head coverings. So praise the Lord for that. And today what Paul is going to be talking about is he's going to be talking about how we are to handle our interpersonal relationships, the way we're to, to conduct ourselves around one another. But what I wanted to drive home as a point from last week is that when we consider head coverings and we wonder, like, what in the world is he talking about? Please understand that regardless of who you are, male, female, young, old, that each of us is to have a head covering. And the covering we are to have is none other than Christ Jesus himself. That he is the one we rely upon to be our head covering. He is our go-between. He's the payment that turned away wrath, our propitiation. We need him to intercede on our behalf. 
And so today, Paul is going to jump into interpersonal relationships and how we are to interact with one another. And remember what I just said, that Paul planted this church back in Acts 18. This was a personal relationship he had with them. He spent 18 months with the church in Corinth. And so as he's writing this letter back to this church, these are people that he knew very, very well. In fact, he considered them his children in the faith. And for those of you in this room that are parents, what you know uh, for sure is that we can have self-control and we can be pretty well even keeled until what? Uh, Somebody messes with one of our kids, right? As soon as somebody starts messing with one of our children, man, all of a sudden, at least for me, uh, the Clark County comes out, right? I'm looking to, somebody's going to be spitting chiclets at some point in time. Like, I'm going to put a stop to this right now. Now, I can lose my Jesus just a little bit whenever someone's messing with my kids. But here's the thing, what irks me even more, what gets me even more fired up than that is when one of my kids messes with one of my kids. When I see the fighting happen inside my family, uh, then all of a sudden I'm ready to lay down the law on everybody because I do not want to tolerate my kids abusing one another or mistreating one another. This is exactly where Paul is writing from. He's writing to his children, and now they are mistreating one another. So if Paul speaks harshly, or he speaks uh, more directly than what we've seen him speak up to this point, understand he's writing from a place where his children are abusing one another. Verse 17, as we pick up, he says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. So Paul, as he began back in verse 2 of this chapter, he starts off by saying, I praise you, brethren, that you remember all the things and keep the traditions that I deliver to you. So like a good leader, he starts off with a word of praise. He's actually praising them for keeping traditions. And the traditions he's talking about specifically are the Lord's Supper and then the eating together, fellowshipping with one another. And so he says it in verse 2 that I praise you. But by the time he gets to verse 17, he says, well, I do not praise you. And the reason isn't because he doesn't uh, praise them because they're getting together, but it's the way in which they're conducting themselves that Paul is admonishing them all about. And this phrase, come together, is one we're going to see over and over again over these next several verses. And I want to highlight that because this phrase is actually the same phrase to connect a husband and a wife relationship. It's an intimate relationship that they were called to have in the Spirit. They were to be that close to one another. In another spot, we see this come up in Scripture, this same phrase, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And so you see that connection that Paul is talking about all the way back here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They were supposed to be connected in such a way spiritually. And yet as they came together, what was happening wasn't unity. They weren't being unified. They were actually being driven apart because of their own selfishness. This is what Paul is talking about. So they're coming together, but it's not a good thing. It's actually harmful to their relationship with Jesus. 4 verse 18, first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you that those who are uh, approved may be recognized among you. And so what Paul's saying is, as you've come together, 
you're now being divided. And there's repercussions in a church body anytime division starts to take hold. Now, it's important to understand that individuals will always have certain likes and dislikes. That the phrase, uh, birds of a feather will flock together. That naturally you're going to be attracted to people that have similar likes and dislikes to you. And that is perfectly understandable. Uh, in other words, the musicians are going to tend to hang out with people who are more musically inclined. And they don't want me hanging out with them. Like, we've heard you sing classic rock. You're awful. Stay away. Now, I appreciate that, but we're unified in the Spirit. So while we're divided, and I'm not going to hang out with them because they don't want me to come sing classic rock at their rehearsal, um, the, the truth is we are still unified while there is division that occurs naturally. And that unification has to happen through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That when you put a diverse group of people together, the only way we can really be connected and get along and motor through this life together is through the Spirit. Now, verse 19 I find interesting because here he says, there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So what he is writing to them and explaining is that God has actually allowed division to take place. He's allowed divisive people to exist in the church for the purpose of testing them. The divisive people have been allowed by God so they might be tested and could be approved. Now this word approved in the Greek is the word adokimoi. It's where we get the Greek word adokimos from. And many of you are like, that's why I don't like to read the Bible because it's got Greek stuff in it. Here's the thing. Uh, Important to understand because the word dokimos was used uh, to represent uh, merchants out in the the uh, area where they would sell goods and services. So what I mean by this is in Corinth, you can imagine there's a marketplace. There's all these vendors everywhere, and you come in from out of town, and you come with your foreign currency. And as you come with your foreign currency, you need to exchange money there in Corinth. And you go up to one of these money changers, and you go to them, and you give them a $10 bill, and they, if they're not reputable, they only give you $8 in return because their scales are weighted. And so in order to give people confidence to spend money in the Roman Empire, what the Romans would do is they would go to these money changers, they would check their scales, they would make sure they'd been tested and approved, and then over the top of their booth, they would have the word dokimos printed out over the top of their booth to prove that they had been tested and approved. And so you would know then you would get a fair trade whenever you would go to one of them. And so what Paul is writing to them about is he is saying, I want you to be tested so that you may be approved. Jesus loves you enough to actually allow difficult people in your life so that you might be tested. Not so he can punish you with difficult people, but so that you can actually be approved. So that what is in us can come then out of us. Now, for many of us, we uh, look at church, and if you've ever been in a church and you've been hurt, uh, you probably said something like this, that, that I'm done going to church because of all the hypocrites. There's so many hypocrites and so much hypocrisy, I'm just going to check out. But here's the thing about that. Um, if we quit going to church because of all the hypocrites, uh, there's none of us going to be here. <laughs> there's not one, including the pastor. Because as much as we try to be people of integrity and do what we say we're going to do, at some point in time we stumble and fumble along the way. But what Paul is writing to them about is, uh, don't let this thing stop you from getting to know the man. A guy that used to lead worship at Parkland Chapel named Gary Silbert would say, 
Um, don't ever let a man keep you from the man. And so many times this is what happens to us, that we follow someone who we feel like is our Paul, but they stumble and fumble along the way. And because we didn't have a direct contact or direct relationship with Christ ourselves, we then allow them to stumble us. And so what happens here is God allows difficult people to actually test our relationship with Him. Now, some of you may ask, okay, what about verse 1 where Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ? Well, what did the end of that verse say? It's imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so if we're following after someone who is not imitating Christ, what we are doing is setting ourselves up for failure, and potentially we walk away from the one who is perfect, the one we're trying to seek after from the very get-go. And so what happens is difficult people are allowed in our life so that we might be tested, so that over our booth we can have the word dokimos printed, which is why now for 21 years I've told my wife, all I'm doing is trying to help you be approved someday. There's a reason I'm so difficult. I'm, I'm doing this for you. This is about, she didn't appreciate that. Verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and the other is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Paul is talking to them about they're coming together to have these meals that were surrounded this communion celebration. They would call them agape feasts. They were, they were called this to be a feast of love. They were actually coming together to show the love of Christ as they shared with one another in a, in a self-sacrificing way. That's what agape love actually means. And yet, what they were doing is they were cooking something, a really good dish, and instead of sharing it with everyone, they would get together with all their buddies and the people they liked the best, and they would huddle together and they would only enjoy it with those who they wanted to be around. And so, for those who were coming from a, a lesser background, the peasants that would come to the church, they wouldn't get an opportunity to eat of the best of the food because of their own selfishness. They weren't sharing with everyone. And this is what Paul is saying. It doesn't line up with Scripture whatsoever. Now, to top it all off, they would have a little glass of wine to wash down the food, and then one would lead to two. And uh, if you drank the way I used to, two would always lead to twelve. And so, before long, they are just sloshed. So now you've got people trying to enter into communion with Christ, into this koinonia. That's what the word koinonia means. It's communion or oneness with God, but they're fall down drunk and they've been excluding people. And so it goes completely against Scripture. But what they were doing is uh, they were essentially uh, lining things up with their Greco-Roman culture. You see, their culture told them that if you're going to throw a big party for all your friends, uh, only invite the people you like over. Make sure you got plenty of booze there at the party. So they were essentially uh, mixing their culture together with their Christianity. You see, and this is what we see happen so often today in our church, that we try to mix our culture together with our Christianity, and what you end up with is a recipe for religion, not a relationship. That's no way to build a relationship at all. And, and, and furthermore, it actually has absolutely no integrity. And so one of the reasons we stick strictly to the Scripture, it's not because I enjoy teaching for 45 minutes about head coverings, 
but it's because integrity exists when you teach directly from the Scripture. Even if it's difficult for us to understand. Even if they're hard topics to talk about and it makes all of us uncomfortable. And when we begin to vary and and veer away from Scripture, what happens is the Spirit is quenched or the Spirit is moved right out of the building. And, And who is the great unifier and comforter? He's the Holy Spirit. And so we wonder why divisions erupt and exist in the church is because we move the Spirit out when we stop having the integrity of the Scripture exist in our church gatherings. Now, what I also wanted to mention is, as I said in the announcements this morning, we practice open communion. And I'm not railing on people that do not practice open communion, but I've been asked, why do we do it that way? Why do I make a deal about it? Well, here's why. If you've ever sat in a church where they don't practice open communion and you've been told, if you're not a member, you need to let the elements pass, uh, you know how that made you feel. Made you feel like a kid on the school grounds when you weren't welcome to participate. Now, many churches do this because they don't want you to inadvertently take communion when you're not a believer, and I get all that, but, but I know how that feels. And so, at the end of the day, we leave it up to the person to make the decision If they're a believer and they profess the name of Christ, then participate. Because we don't intentionally want people to be excluded. This is also the reason why we do the communion meals together. And as a kid growing up in the Baptist church, uh, we called them potlucks. Many of you grew up, you know, with that was a potluck is what we would call it. Now, we had a guy at Parkland Chapel uh, that came up and he's like, well, you can't call it potluck because there's no such thing as luck as a Christian. And so I thought, well, okay, what can we call it? We, we live by faith, not by luck. So we could call it pot faith. But then that just sounds like another weed shop in town. So I'm like, ain't nobody going to want to go to... We're gonna, people are going to think it, maybe more people would show up. Like, what? But a whole different deal would happen. That might lack some integrity of Scripture. And so uh, we'll call them a koinonia dinners. So we have koinonia dinners with the idea of being able to come together as one and enjoy a meal together. Now, Verse 23, at the beginning of this verse, Paul says, For I receive from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that, excuse me, that which I also delivered to you. And so what Paul is saying here at the beginning of the verse is that anything he's sharing with them is something that he's already previously received. He's only giving them that which he has already been given. And I I wanted to stop and highlight that because oftentimes we find ourselves in a situation where you're put in a spot to share and you go, you know what, I don't know what to share. I I don't know what to say in this spot. And so what Paul says is, you know what you should share? That which you have first received. The thing that you've been given by the Lord. Maybe it was a Bible teaching. Maybe it was a scripture. Perhaps it was something that the pastor said that week that in particular gripped you. That's the thing the Lord has given you that He wants you to then share with that other person. There's a reason you've been put in this spot. The Lord has called me in particular to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So as God sends you out into the world, He's giving you an opportunity to interact with the world so that you can share that which you first received. Now, this to some of you who are of the highest uh, integrity, this might sound like you're ripping someone off. I want to give you encouragement that if at any point you feel like you're ripping me off, here's the thing. I've already ripped somebody else off in order to come up with a really clever thing. And for me to rip somebody else off to then share it with you, I have usually given them absolutely zero credit whatsoever. And I'll claim it as my own. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. Now, I'm being a little funny 
intentionally. But here's the thing. For each of us, we've all ripped somebody else off. Every single one of us. We don't have an original thought or idea. We've heard it or we've studied it or we've learned it from somewhere. And so we can only share that which what we have previously been given. When I was first getting the opportunity to teach the Bible, we entered into a preaching cohort. So it was a group of pastors that got together or those that hoped to be pastors. And we were just learning how to study and then teach the Bible. And so in this particular cohort, each of us was given a section of Scripture to work through. And then the following week, we were to have a message written and we were going to share it with the group over a day-long session. And so the passage that I was given, man, I studied it, and I'm reading commentaries, and I'm listening to people, and I'm pondering it, reading it different versions, and just trying to soak it all in. And so I, I listened to a guy that, that did an unbelievable job, a famous pastor, uh, Skip Heitzig, out of Albuquerque, uh, Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque, one of the ten largest churches in the country. So he's got 15,000 people coming, and Skip's awesome. And I listened to this message, I'm like, Man, this is amazing. I mean, I could never do it like Skip. So I'm, I'm going back and studying more, hoping to be able to get more out of the text. And then I thought, you know, I'll listen to somebody else. And so I, I go back, I go old school on it. I, I open up a J. Vernon McGee audio message. And I begin to listen to J. Vernon. Have you ever heard J. Vernon McGee? He taught the Bible bus through the Bible. He was from Texas with his draw. And he'd say, friends... Now, friends, let's turn, open our Bibles today. And so Jay Vernon teaches this message. And to my shock, they were the exact points that Skip Heitzig taught from the message I just listened to. And so I went to my pastor. I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I, I just listened to this message and Skip literally shared the exact same points from Jay Vernon in the Bible bus. And Jay's been dead for 25 years. So what in the world? Like, did he just rip J. Vernon McGee off? And, and Pastor Mike looked at me and he said, no, that's not ripping somebody off. All he did was he just moved around some furniture. And that's, that's really what we're all doing, right? We're just moving furniture around. The couch gets slid over here. The table gets moved over there. The lampstand gets put in that spot. But all this to say that we can only share that which we have first received. And so for each of you, you've been put in a position to share with someone that the Lord, what the Lord is teaching you, what you're learning, hopefully on a weekly, if not a daily basis. Now, continuing back to the text, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so here we have... Paul being taught by Jesus himself in the desert of Arabia about the Lord's Supper. That on that night when he was getting ready to give his life, he walked through this with his disciples. And what I love about this is here's the God of the universe giving his life for us so that you and I can have life. And as he's doing this, he doesn't ask for us to erect a monument. He doesn't ask for us to build him a building or even as awesome as a, the cross is in Effingham. He, He's not asking for us to erect a 100-foot-tall cross. 
He's not looking for that or even a holiday. You know what he was looking for? A meal. He was looking for us to enjoy a meal together, for us to actually have relationship, to spend time together. And so this is consistent with what we see Jesus doing throughout his ministry. You guys remember the story from Bible school, right? Luke chapter 19, Zacchaeus is up in a tree. And what's the Lord do is he's walking down the street. He points at Zacchaeus and he says, come down for I'm coming to your house today. He invites himself over to have a meal at Zacchaeus's house. And many of you are like, that's rude. He just invited himself over. Well, he's king of the universe. He can do that. So he invites himself over to Zacchaeus's house. Why? So they could eat together. And John chapter 21, after Jesus has risen from the dead, he goes to where the disciples are at. He meets them where they're at, on the Galilee. And as he's there on the shore, what's Jesus do? But he, he cooks breakfast, of all things. He literally tells the guys, come in and eat some breakfast. Luke chapter 7, what we see is the, those who were criticizing Jesus, what they had to say was they were appalled because he ate with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. They were upset that he was eating with them. And just reason number one million that I love Jesus is he loves to eat. I love to eat. He loves to eat. But what he loves even more than the eating is he loves relationships. This is his heart's desire is to have relationship with us. And what he knows and what we hopefully are learning is as we experience these relationships, there's a oneness that happens. The reason that eating is so intimate, it's, it's because we're literally consuming the same thing together and processing through that as a family. And so there's this connection that happens while we eat together. And we have this connection then with the Lord as we dine with Him. Now, what we find in the Lord's Supper as we consider this is it's an opportunity to look back at what He has done. Him giving His life so that you and I can have life. We also have an opportunity to look at the present, what He is doing. And He is doing something in each and every one of us if we allow it. None of us is complete yet. Until the day we go home, we are being worked on. So He is doing a work in us presently. But then I love this in verse 26. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. There is a future coming that we get to look forward to. And so we have the past that we get to look back at what He has done for me, the present, what He is doing for me, and all the way out into the future, what He will do. It's, it's an eager anticipation for His return. Now again, uh, growing up Baptist, we talked about the return of Jesus. I don't know about any of you that grew up like that, but man, we did not talk about it in a way that got me uh, excited about Him coming. In fact, usually it was at a revival and the guy was sweating, and he was pounding on stuff, and he was like, think about it. Where are you going to go if tonight you're out on 130, and an 18-wheeler comes out, and you find yourself before the Lord? And he was slamming, dab his head. And that's the way I got preached to. And literally, it scared the hell right out of me. I'm like, I, I don't want that. That's no good. But, but Romans 2.4 says that it's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. And so what the Lord has called us to is not consider it in that way. While there is definitely a fear of the Lord, there's also, for us as believers, there should be a, an anticipation, an excitement 
on, on the return of our King. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter 12, teaching on this very thing in, in the parable of the faithful servant, this is what He says, Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their Master when He will return from the wedding, that when He comes and knocks, that they may open to Him immediately. And blessed are those servants whom the Master, when He comes, will find watching. Assuredly, I say to you that He will gird Himself and have them sit down and eat and will come and serve them. And if He should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the Master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, He would have watched and not allowed His house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for you, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so our encouragement in this is to be watching, excitedly waiting for the Master to return. And what I love about this passage is when the Master returns, did you notice what He did in the middle of the text? The Master stopped, girded Himself, and then made a meal for the servants. There's no Master that would have done that other than the capital M Master who Revelation 19 tells us is preparing the wedding supper of the Lamb for us. He's preparing that thing for me. And so when I think excitedly about what He is up to, there's this expectation, this excitement of, around His fulfillment. And understand this, back when Jesus is saying this, what Paul is remembering here in, in 1 Corinthians 11, is that what Jesus was sharing with the disciples was really a preview of things to come as he was actually fulfilling prophetic words from all the way back in Leviticus. And so for many of you, uh, Leviticus, this is the spot where all Bible reading plans go to die. Where you're like, I can't do it anymore, Leviticus. But here's the thing, uh, Jesus is on every page. And in Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feast of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, these are my feasts. And so the Lord says, I want you to tell the nation to remember these things. Holy convocations, these are my feasts with a capital M. And he proceeds to give them seven different feasts, four in the spring and three in the fall. He starts with the feast of Passover. This is what Jesus is celebrating with his disciples. It then goes from Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, from Unleavened Bread to the Feast of First Fruits, First Fruits then to Pentecost, and that makes up the Spring Feast. Now then you fast forward through the Summer Harvest, and you have then the Feast of Trumpets that begins the fall time. From the Feast of Trumpets, you then have Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and then lastly, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so, in this, the reason I'm sharing this is that the word convocation, what it really indicates is a rehearsal. What the Lord is saying is, I want you to rehearse these things. Now what you guys all know is that uh, nobody would attend the rehearsal unless there was an actual event. Right? You're not going to go to a rehearsal for a play and not want to go see the actual play. Nobody attends the wedding rehearsal, at least the rehearsals I do, and actually even pay attention, let alone act like it's the day. But we do it why? Because there is a day coming. And what we see is these convocations, these rehearsals all led to, as it relates to the springtime, a particular event. What we find is Jesus 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, on that Passover night, he became the fulfillment of that scripture. What he was doing in his first coming is fulfilling these feasts. His body was then buried at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. His body that had no sin. Leaven in our scripture is always a picture of sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so his unleavened body put in the ground only to rise again at the Feast of First Fruits. Paul would say he is the first fruits of the resurrection. And as you fast forward 50 days later to the Feast of Pentecost, which was always the beginning of the harvest, the Holy Spirit was given to them on that Pentecost that directly followed Jesus giving his life. And what happened that day in Acts chapter 2, but 3,000 people come to know the Lord that day. The beginning of the harvest started right then and there. And so at his first coming, the fulfillment of all these feasts from way back in Leviticus 23 happened right then and there, which leaves the fall feasts. The thing that I believe we have to look forward to is the Feast of Trumpets. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says when the trump sounds, he's going to come back for us. And those who have gone on before us and us who are still here, we're going to be caught up into heaven with him when the trumpet sounds. And Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement. What would happen on the Day of Atonement is the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would uh, make atonement for the sin of the people. And as he came out from behind the veil there in the Holy of Holies and exited the temple, they would be waited. They would be waiting excitedly for him to appear. Why? Because their sins had been forgiven. Their sin had been dealt with. And all the nation would cheer. And so this is Jesus arriving there at his second coming on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, he's going to emerge and all those who had had the veil over their eyes, the veil is going to be removed and they're going to know their sins have been dealt with once and for all. All that leading us up to the Feast of Tabernacles. That feast where they would then uh, camp out with the Lord to signify the years they spent in the wilderness. And this lines up directly with the, the new beginning, the millennial kingdom where Jesus is going to rule and reign and we as saints are going to get a comeback and tabernacle with him. We're going to get to hang out with Jesus for a thousand years and rule and reign. And so we're waiting expectantly, excitedly for future and further fulfillment, not uh, in fear. Now, after that sidebar, you thought we were going to get done early. Verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drinks, eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. And so this passage has caused many people to not want to take communion and avoid it altogether. Because we go, you know what? I am partaking from an unworthy spot. I am not worthy to take communion. And so we let the cup pass. And what I want to share with you is, this would be no different than you going to the doctor and him telling you, hey, why don't you get the feeling better and come back and see me in a couple weeks? Or you going into the restaurant starving and the chef there says, hey, why don't you go get something to eat? and then come back and I'll make you a plate. This is the same thing. 
Because what we are supposed to find at his table as we examine ourselves and realize we're unworthy, if we were dependent upon our worthiness, none of us would be able to partake. I'm the chief of the ones who wouldn't be able to partake of the Lord's Supper. But I'm not dependent upon my worthiness. I'm dependent upon Christ Jesus and his worthiness. And so as a result, we can partake in communion even when we're struggling, especially when we're struggling. And we have an opportunity then to look back to the past of what he's done, what he is doing, and then to the future, what he will do, and all this spells out victory. We have an opportunity for ultimate victory. But the issue we have is because we devalue communion, because we don't observe it, or we don't even want to participate, it leaves us in a spot of hopelessness. Where is our hope if not in the blood of Christ? I don't want to be there before the true and living God without the protection of his blood, you see. And so what Paul is trying to communicate to them is that, yes, while while we, far too often, the talking of the blood and the talking about his sacrifice, it might make us uncomfortable. Here's the thing. Not talking about it, not sharing about the blood of Jesus, it leaves us completely hopeless because the only chance we have of being washed clean is the blood of Jesus. And so oftentimes in churches, we, we want to drive all the talk of blood out because we want to be seeker sensitive. Look, I, I want to see people come to know the Lord. I want people to come in here and seek and find Jesus. But if we will not share about His blood, washing us white as snow, then they will not be healed. And many will be sick. And many will be weak. And many will sleep and die and never know the truth. That's the reality. And so we share because we don't want spiritual sickness to continue. And no amount of devices and programs is ever going to be able to cure what the blood is necessary to cure. Now, verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment, and the rest I will set in order when I come. And so what Paul is encouraging us to do as we look towards communion is to first look inward. It's really an opportunity for us to judge ourselves inwardly. And here's the beautiful thing. If I judge myself, I actually avoid the wrath of God. This is what he, he promises throughout Scripture. If you will look and just be honest with yourself, realize your destitute, poor state, you can then avoid wrath and actually enjoy His forgiveness. Enjoy the liberty that He's given. Matthew 5.3 says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so being poor in spirit isn't poor in wallet. It's, it's being poor with how we view ourselves. It's understanding the spot that we're in. And as we then come to a realization of the place we're at and we participate in communion and then we welcome other people in, guess what? Uh, we won't have to get the legal pad out. Because what happens often is as people come in, we immediately want to get out the legal pad. We want to think we're in a pretty good spot. And then we start taking down notes. Right? We're, we're the police officer. We're going to document everything to do with this case. But here's the thing. Um, God didn't call us to set this up as a police station where we're logging in evidence. What he called us to be is a hospital where those who are sick and bleeding 
and hurt can have some pressure applied to that thing to stop the bleeding. Not so that we can be the position, but so that we can get them to the great position. So the great position can wait on them and see them and that they can be healed. And so we're called to be paramedics, not police officers. Now, for many of us who are considering communion, maybe not many, maybe just a few, the, the thought is, well, if, if I have to know the Lord, I don't know that I'm in the right spot. I don't know if I'm in the right place. I don't know if I actually know Jesus. And so you're tempted to just let it pass. Because what I've set up here is, is you need to know the Lord before you participate in, in dying at His table. What I want to share with you is from a group of people who, who wanted, I believe they wanted to do rightly, from John chapter 6, they approached Jesus and they said in verse 28, uh, what must we do to do the works of the Lord? And so they desired to do the works of the Lord. They, they didn't have bad intent. But their question was one that we need to answer. What must we do if we want to do the works of the Lord? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him who He sent. That's it. The work of God is simply believing on Him who He sent. You see, lots of times we think we got to get it all cleaned up. I got to get it all together, and then I can come into a right relationship. And the reality is, we're never going to get it cleaned up enough. We're never going to get it right enough. We're never going to have it all pulled together to come into a spot to dine at his table. And what Jesus says is, here's all you need to do believe in him who he sent. And then all the work he actually does, and here's the beauty not from the outside in, but from the inside out. His promise is to cleanse us from the inside out. And all the things you were trying to work on and fix about yourself and get all straightened out, guess what? Jesus is just going to deal with those things. They're going to just fall off and you're not going to have a clue what happened, how it happened, or, or where you, you finally went right. You went right by simply believing on Him who He sent. And so as we get ready to pass out the elements, if you're in that spot and you're not sure if you can participate or not, all you got to do is answer that. And if you haven't answered that, just say, Lord, I believe on him who he sent. I don't have it together, but I believe in him. And then you're free to partake. Now, for others here in this room, uh, you've lived a life where maybe things haven't gone exactly the way you want them to go. You've believed on him who he sent, and yet things have gone sideways at some point in time. And so you're, you're in this spot where you're not sure if you're worthy or not. And here's the issue for folks that have, have known the Lord and do know the Lord, but they won't participate because they don't feel worthy, is that we view God as a father with his arms crossed. Like he's looking down on us in disgust and disbelief, and we, I can't believe you did that. And that's a completely wrong view of God. That's not how he looks at us at all. It's not how we see him in Scripture at all. But instead, what we see, just like the story of the prodigal, that as we begin to make our way back to him, he comes running to us like an open-armed Abba, our father, our daddy, is the way that the scriptures communicate our relationship we now have with him. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in that spot, to realize he is open-armed. He is so welcoming and ready to just bring you back into the fold. And so, Father, thank you. 
And I praise you as we get our hearts ready for communion. Lord, would you speak to each one of us? Individually, we want to be reflective. We, we know where we've been in our past. Lord, help us to see what you're working on right now in the present. We're excited about you coming in the future. We're jazzed about that word. But right now, we're dealing in the here and now. And so, Father, thank you for being gentle and kind and merciful and gracious. Lord, help us as we process through this to realize that you've already forgiven us. To repent really just means to say back, to repeat back to you. So these are things that you've already given your life for. You've already died for that stuff. So, Lord, help us as we repent of these things to realize we're just saying things to you that you already knew about us. That's healthy. There's healing in that spot. Lord, please heal us from the inside out. And help us as we receive healing to then take that so that we can share that same kind of hope and that same kind of healing with others. So will we prepare our hearts right now to receive communion from you. In Jesus' name.